0: Welcome to the Drop the Mic podcast, where we'll dive into conversations with some of the music industry's most established professionals. Like all of our episodes, what you will hear today has been created and curated by Stanford students who are breaking their way into the music scene. I'm Jay Labov, and I lead Stanford University's music industry initiatives. Whether you're aspiring to launch your career in the music industry, are already a music industry pro, or just curious to learn more, we've got you covered. Keep listening to hear from some of the industry's best in marketing and branding. In just a minute, we'll dive into conversations with Alicia Pham, Head of Urban Music at Columbia Records, Cameron Strang, former CEO of Warner Records and Warner Chapel Music, Mayur Gupta, former VP of Growth and Marketing at Spotify, and more. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get into the conversation.
1: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Stanford Music Industry Podcast. My name is Evan Michelle Miller, and I am a member of the class of 2020 at Stanford, and I'll be one of your hosts for this podcast episode. This episode is all about marketing and branding in the music business. Today, we'll be discussing a range of important and intriguing topics within marketing and branding, such as the way that fans impact marketing, as well as the importance of social media, culture, data, and monetization. To give us some key insights, we'll be speaking to a few industry professionals who have plenty of experience in all of these areas. I'm sure you're all excited to dive into this content. We are too. But before we do, let's get to know our industry guests a bit better. First, we'll be hearing from Dauda Leonard. Douta is the CEO of music management company CreateSafe and has over a decade of experience in the music industry. Douta has worked as a manager, publisher, producer, a&R, and creative director for the likes of Grimes, DJ Snake, and Skrillex. Our next guest, Felicia Font, is a highly accomplished music industry executive who currently serves as the head of urban music at Columbia Records, where she oversees a roster that includes acts such as Little Nas X, Pharrell, Chloe and Halle, and Lil TJ. We also had the chance to speak with Igor Katz, the owner and co-founder of Ineffable Music Group, an Oakland, California-based coalition of artists, managers and promoters that work together across the spectrum of the music business to curate music and live events across the world. Adam Reimer is a digital marketer who is currently the director of fan engagement and digital marketing at Warner Records, whose roster of artists has included Linkin Park, Michael Buble, and My Chemical Romance. We were pleased to have the opportunity to speak with him and hear some of his insights about marketing for music. Next, we'll be hearing from Mayur Gupta, marketing guru and former VP of growth and marketing at the streaming giant Spotify. Nima Fadavi also took the time to speak with us for today's episode. Nima is a seasoned marketer with over a decade of experience in marketing for the entertainment business. He is currently the president of Verticals Agency, a full service marketing agency specializing in music and lifestyle. And last, but certainly not least, we'll be hearing from Cameron Strang, the former CEO of Warner Brothers Records. As I'm sure you can see, we have an exciting and informative episode for you all. Let's get into it.
2: All right, so you're an aspiring artist. You've got your rapper name, your stage persona, maybe even a couple singles pop in, and you know you're going to be the next big thing. But how do you actually get started? Hi, my name is Ayush, aka Young YoungYush, and I'll be guiding you all through the first part of the journey on the roots of marketing, starting with what Dauda says about personal branding.
3: What you may or may not know is that now, more than any other time in the history of man do you have the ability to be a artist? We all start out in this world as creatives. Creators have for a long time been looked at as frivolous means of ways to succeed in the world. And only a chosen few special people are able to achieve that. But today, there is a recorded over 3.8 million artists in the world And around 3.1 million of those artists are self-managed or quote unquote do not have a manager, uh, are not signed to a record label or publishing company. The fact that there are almost 4 million artists in the world who are outside of the, the normal space that you have seen people be successful in says a lot, says that you don't need the millions of dollars in order to like, have a successful career being an artist. You know, you can make a living being an artist or working with an artist.
2: Okay, so that's fair. But how do I become something bigger than that? I don't just want to make a living. What if I want to be the next Drake or Future or Kanye? Maybe not Kanye. How do I get to that next level?
3: That's where most people who are in the music business are looking to get to. And so everybody wanted to know how do you get here, right? How do you get to a space where you have all these people working on your behalf and you're generating tons of value to the world, not only through capital, but the impact of your contributions artistically. The only way to get here is really through here, self-management. Only way that you can grow and progress in the music business is to know who you are and if you're going to be an artist the the most important person that needs to know who you are is yourself essentially like what are the building blocks to that brand that you're in development of which are things like what you believe in you know who you are not the genre that you represent and Going back to the self-management aspect of it is once you can pinpoint these things and continue to refine them, marketing is just an extension of your brand. Marketing is a tool for the amplifications of your message. So from day one, when you make something, you have to be thinking about how does it get to the most people possible?
2: Okay, got it. I got to build my personal values out, put together a brand, and then from there, I can really succeed and market myself. But what if I just copied someone else? I mean, how much of this has to be unique to who I am on a bigger marketing level? Well, according to Felicia, actually, a lot of it depends on exactly who you are.
4: It's definitely not one size fits all because then that becomes, I would say, stagnant. You have to really figure out what the artist cares about, you know? I think it's important to include social impact because I think artists have a responsibility. They have a voice, but again, everyone is not ready for that mission. So it's figuring out as an artist, what makes sense for you? What do you naturally tap into? What do people want to see from you and how exposed are you willing to be? You cannot be scared to be vulnerable right now and you can't be scared to take risks. And I say this again, as the future of music, you guys have to be willing to take risks. You have to not take yourself so seriously and you have to be willing to pivot at any given time.
5: Thank you.
6: Now that you have established your personal brand, the next challenge is to effectively communicate this brand vision with your audience. My name is Dana Gallegos, and I'm a senior at Stanford studying the evolution of media technologies from a communication standpoint. In this section, our industry professionals will walk you through the process of establishing and maintaining a loyal fan base, as well as helping your reason through the art of marketing your own brand.
4: Local papers tend to care about artists coming out of their particular town. And there's never been a time when I started PR, I didn't start with the local papers. When I had JoJo, I went to Boston Herald every day. Like that was where I started her. She was from Boston. I needed people to get behind her. When I first worked with little Nas X, the first place I went to was the Atlanta Hawks and said, can you guys do his song during halftime? Because you still want local heroes. You know what I'm saying? With Polo G during All-Star, we took over Chicago because he was from Chicago and wanted people to know, like, this is your Chicago's next biggest artist. Like, we know you know G Herbo, but you got to know Polo too. So don't ever forget about local press. And then take the time to research blogs and independent magazines that look for artists. You know, Ones to Watch is, you know, a great platform for people who aren't signed, you know? So I don't want you to think that publicity has to just be what, the big magazines are what you think those things are. Like, it's always building blocks. You have to have a foundation. Are you really just become someone that people look at and go away? You have to think about it like building a house. So the house has to have a foundation. You have to say, okay, here's my local press and they have my back. Here's my influence or my college papers and they have my back. Like you guys are in college. So I would definitely make sure that all the college radio stations know about me. I would definitely know, make sure that all the college papers know about me as well because this is your... This is your home, this is your actual pocket. And we still blasted those. We have a college marketing team because we want this audience. So you should want that audience too. Don't bypass the people that are gonna be there forever by ignoring the fact that you have to have a foundation. Like one article is great, but having fans at every college that supports you is even better. So make sure you know that your local papers matter, your college papers matter, and the things that actually speak to you as an individual matter. And so when you're pitching yourself, Pitch things that also bring out your own personality, people that want to know about you.
6: As important as the press is, you need to be strategic about what press you are seeking after. This is a point made by Igor Katz, who believes in providing consistent and cohesive content over time in order to healthily and safely grow your audience.
7: Press does not translate into fans. Even if you get like for, you know, everyone's like, I want to be on Billboard.com for my premiere because it's a look But no, if I don't know you and I'm on billboard.com, I'm not clicking your stuff. Like it's just, I'm not doing it, right? Um, That doesn't translate into fans. So focusing more so on what does translate into fans, what drives discovery and how to not just gain more fans, but how do we feed our existing fans, keep them happy and full. And then also, you know, getting discovery from more fans. And the process of that is again, the consistent release of this cohesive content over time.
6: Let's say you started off marketing yourself or your artist locally and then over time expanded to other relevant circles in a cohesive manner. How can you make sure that you're still engaging with your audience on a personal level? To illustrate this sometimes bumpy journey, Adam explains how he went about establishing a trustful and long-lasting relationship with Linkin Park's fanbase.
0: I mean, over the years, you know, especially with the Linkin Park fans and now this band Paris I work on, they've got a, such a rabid fan base and I've gotten to know a few of them a little bit and having a connection with fans, you know, it's not easy to do. When I got to Linkin Park, I remember Mike from the band said, yo, we've got this forum and it hasn't been super active lately or... Or it was just in a weird place. It was just a weird environment in that form. He said, so "You should go in there and like introduce yourself and strike up conversations with fans." And I go, "Okay." And I went in. Those fans just tore me apart. They were like, "Who are you? Like, shut up. We don't we don't care what who you are and what you have to say." And I was like, "Whoa, okay." Like, this isn't as easy as just saying, "Like, yo, I work for the band. Let's have a relationship." And it took me a long time. And I finally formulated a relationship with those fans that I still have 12 years later, you know, I I text with some of their biggest fans weekly, you know. If there's some big information that they need to know about, I'll hit them up ahead of time. If there's information that's leaked or there's an issue, you know, hey, we posted some videos that got taken down on Facebook. Can you help us out? And they'll shoot me a text and I'll get it taken care of for them. Or, yo, someone's impersonating Mike Shinoda on Instagram. Can you get them removed? Yeah, no problem. You know, I got it. And I think like having that relationship with the fans is, it's rare. It's really, really rare because it's not easy to do because it's built on trust. They trust me and I trust them. And now when I travel, like my wife and I were in Hong Kong a few years ago and like a couple Lincoln Park fans met us there and took us around the city for a day. Like, you know, that's the kind of cool thing that, that happens when you have these amazing relationships.
8: As
6: you heard, growing and maintaining a loyal audience can yield incredible and long lasting relationships with people. Unfortunately, it may not always be as easy as it sounds. With over 10 years of experience in the marketing industry, Mayor Gupta walked us through his more technical and in detail approach towards building brand loyalty.
5: I think the way you build this journey uh, or or you build the loyalty is is really going through multiple phases. But let's break it down into two phases zero to one and one to n, or zero to product market fit and post product market fit, pre product market fit and post. Uh, I think the pre-product market fit, let's just say this is your journey to get to your 1,000 users or 10,000 users. And first of all, there are three usual ways that you can determine, do you have the loyalty or do you have a product market fit? Do you have the right product in the right market with enough of scale? I think there are three kind of criteria you can think about. One is, do you have enough of a scale? So do you have volume of users who are coming and, and staying? Two, is there enough repeatability? Are they retaining? Are they engaging? Are they coming back? That's the second signal. Because you can acquire users, you know, you can sell whatever you want, they can come in, but will they come back is very important. Third is their virality. Are they bringing their friends? Are they recommending your service, your product? So those are three key signals, first of all, that, okay, you built a good product in a good market. Now you have to worry about scale. In order for you to get to that product market fit and in that first half of the journey. Your focus is literally on product. Your product is your brand. The experiences you drive is your brand. You're not necessarily uh, investing a lot on at, you know, brand, as in TV, top of funnel channels and whatnot. You're literally saying, how do I deliver the most incredible experience that is going to build a functional utilitarian value, but also a bit of the emotional value, okay? The challenge and the opportunity is once you've proven that, how do you shift gears once you've reached that scale, once you've proven the product market fit? That's when you have to shift gears and say, well, I was operating in this much addressable market. I was targeting Gen Zs who will live in this type of area and, and X, Y, and Z. A lot of them came. A lot of them keep coming back. Fantastic. But now I have to scale to 10 million users. Now I have to scale to 100 million users. Well, that scale now requires investment in the brand. Because now you have to invest more in that emotional value, in that cultural connection, not just in that product feature benefit or the functional utilitarian value. The reason why you need that at this stage is because now you need scale. Now you need people to come to you. Now you need to have a pull strategy. Now you need to invest more in that organic growth. But also you have to make sure that In order for you to really have a growing business, ultimately you wanna have strong retention. Ultimately you wanna have strong lifetime value. That's why we all want loyal users because their lifetime value to the business is higher. But the way you do that is when you really have these modes that prevent you from leaving, where your offering is not just functional. Because if the only problem you're solving is utilitarian and functional, then you are just waiting for another product, another startup to come and give you the same value for lower price or, or more value for the same price. And people will leave because they have no connection, right? Uh, it's the connection you have with Spotify is, on one hand, is the emotional connection, but it's also your playlist. So you're using those as hooks to keep you back. The connection you have on LinkedIn are all the network you built. It's not going to let you take it with you. The connection you have in Netflix is your data, is all those behavioral data that elevates your experience every subsequent time. So you have to invest in those in that one-to-end stage to make sure that when people come in, there is no friction. When they want to leave, you have these modes that make them think before they leave you.
8: We've seen that fans are an essential base to marketing, but how does one exactly engage with their fans? During COVID-19, for example, we've seen social media come to the forefront in a whole new light. Artists must reach out directly to their fans now that touring is completely off the table. We're in a new age of marketing where social media is the place to hear from your favorite artists. From Facebook to Twitter to Instagram, it seems like we can barely come up with all the different social media platforms and the content that is being delivered on each of them. With that in mind, we asked Adam from Warner Records if he thinks it's pertinent that an artist is present in every corner of the internet.
0: Seven years ago, it was like everyone needs to be on every platform. Every artist needs to be on every platform. And I've taken the approach with my artists now that that's a terrible idea. You know, I just had an intro meeting to an artist last week that we just signed. And, you know, the thing I told him that I tell all of my new artists is I'm not going to make you do anything you don't want to do. If you're If you're uncomfortable on TikTok, it's a giant waste of my time and a giant waste of your time to change that. Now, if you're curious about it, I'll show you around. I'll help you out. I'll give you some ideas. But if the whole idea of that either scares you or just isn't interesting to you, all good. Let's focus on what you do want to focus on or what you're comfortable with. If it's Instagram, let's do that. If it's YouTube, let's do that. If it's Twitter, let's do that. Like, This idea that they need to be everywhere all the time is unfair and it's just not practical. So I've gotten away from that big time and our strategies change constantly as the platforms do.
8: From Adam, we learned the importance of authenticity as an artist when it comes to social media usage. However, we found that there's a different story when it comes to streaming platforms. Here's Igor from Ineffable Music giving his take
7: you know, YouTube and Apple and Spotify and, and whatever else, like, they all have their own rules, their own algorithms, they're all diehard fans. And as a manager, like, our job is to not pick one or the other. It's just to make our content available on all of them because you as a fan might already have one that you're comfortable with. Like, the other day I asked my brother, "It's like, yo, what do you listen to music on? Just, you know, out of curiosity. And he said, Google Play. And I was like, spit my food out. I was like, Google Play? Are you f- kidding me, bro? Like, What? You know, but then I was like, wait a minute. Okay, hold on. Okay, that's what's up. It, it you know, again, reinforced in my brain that like people have the stuff that are used to that they're comfortable with. And if you don't make your content available on all the different digital platforms, you're missing out potentially on a fan that maybe would have listened to you on Amazon or on, you know, Deezer or Tidal or whatever you want. No problem. And in different parts of the world, these different kind of DSPs are more prevalent. YouTube is probably the biggest worldwide version of this so if you you know if you're talking the caribbean you're talking in africa you're talking in europe uh, youtube is actually youtube bigger than spotify apple music and all of the other ones combined and that's why you hear people complaining about how they pay out the least but they pay out the least because they have the most people so the most people actually means the most views so you can actually make more money but per stream yeah it's going to be less If you compare it one-to-one, it's like, depending on the type of artist that you are and your ability to navigate individually within these different platforms, understanding the tricks and how to use them properly, like, you can actually drive a lot of discovery to yourself um, and to your artist without having to pay money or, you know, do anything crazy.
8: Although it may not be necessary for an artist to be present on every social media platform, Many are starting to take the move to the most recent, hot social media platform, the video-sharing app, TikTok. It has absolutely taken over the internet, and it appears as if it more or less controls the charts. Songs like Meg The Stallion's Savage, Roddy Rich's The Box, K Camp's Lottery, and so many other songs seem to absolutely sweep the platform. But what makes TikTok so successful, and how can it be utilized in music marketing? Here's Felicia from Columbia Records on why TikTok is such an outstanding platform right now.
4: I think that there are so many forms of technology and different ways to use TikTok. You know, the ways that you can create videos, it's just a massive platform. It's taken every possible thing and TikTok counts for music streams. So because it does everything right, everyone's willing to use it. Partners are able to utilize it. This platform because it speaks to everybody's need, but at this moment, you know, it's just what again culture does, culture drives everything, and so the culture is in TikTok. So, as long as the culture likes TikTok, we have to accept it.
8: We can see that TikTok has become a platform that is drowning in culture where all sorts of creators are going viral. But, how is the technology pertinent to the music industry in particular? Here's Nima from Verticals Agency speaking on the power of TikTok's algorithm and what it means for artists.
9: I can do a video right now, put the Megan Thee Stallion song on there that's going crazy, but then turn the volume down on the song so it's still my audio and that's still going to show up on their rankings for the song. So all of a sudden I'm going trending based on people that are searching that song, but I'm just doing, I might be doing a tutorial or I might be doing like a cooking video. So there, there's, uh, there's a lot of power behind the way you can get strategic and uh, creative with the way you use their platform and their tools.
8: Through social media platforms such as TikTok, we are not only able to stay connected with the artists we already know and love, but we are also able to discover new artists, whether on purpose or on quote-unquote accident through a meme or a trend of some sort. Most recently, a TikTok video went viral with Party Girl by Stay Solid Rocky as the audio. Two girls were about to make a dance video outdoors with their phone perched on top of a mailbox when a USPS driver pulled up and jokingly waved to the camera. This video has garnered over 9 million likes on TikTok, but how does the song transcend its reputation beyond just the audio behind a funny video? Here's Felicia of Columbia Records talking about how Stay Solid Rocky can become more than just a meme alongside artists like Lil Nas X, who can also thank the internet for their fame. We can take
4: the stars, which are these two girls and this male lady, and try to make traction and then utilize the fact that everyone has picked this up. Ellen picked it up, John Oliver picked it up. Like the meme is everywhere. So it's like it's culturally there. So now that we have kind of bypassed and got culture to care. And we have to now get people to care about him. So we do that through also figuring out how we put out more music and what music does he have that he's ready to put out. So that af- after this song is great, when's the next song that we put out so people can start add- adding more layers to him. Cause it's all about adding layers back. You know, you guys see this big song, but you know nothing about him. So we have to pull you back into the very beginning. It's almost like a reverse marketing plan to say, okay, this is his song. This is why he wrote this song. This is the emotions he had tied to this song. We want you guys to know this just in case so that you guys can get to know his next round of music. And we have to come in as an a team and say, let's get the right songs together so that these songs in this body of work make sense. And then if the song is doing really well, we don't want it to burn out. So as you guys saw with Little Nas X, we're like, we need another remix. You know what I'm saying? It was his song. But it was a Billy Ray song. But... At that point, it became a situation of how do we keep this going because we can see that this song can make history, it can break charts, but we also do remixes because we want to refresh songs and there's also different radio formats that want a different type of song. Every song doesn't fit for every radio format or every type of streaming, so it's creating songs in different remixes to cater to different people and open him up to different pockets of culture and hopefully make him a global star so you are constantly as I said looking to see what culture is reacting to and responding to because nothing really is more important than the fans reaction to any song at any given time even if we think something is a priority it can always change based off the people on the screen if you see something or feel a certain way or something's reactive for instance I don't work Meg Thee Stallion but Savage was not her best single you know and then all of a sudden it became part of a TikTok challenge and then it got more life and then it kind of faded away and then Beyonce got back on it. So then it became another song. And now she's back in her whole mission of what she was doing on the radio, which we thought was going down is now going right back up. So again, I think culture, especially in this time of COVID really is unpredictable. I and mean, you just have to be ready to pivot at any different time.
8: In addition to providing consistent quality content that can reach all sorts of audiences, Nima touches on the importance of brand awareness and marketing and artist. What else is necessary beyond getting 9 million likes on a video or even releasing a remix with Beyonce or Billy Ray Cyrus?
9: In general marketing, there's a big step that I feel like a lot of people um, skip out on, and that's a brand awareness side. So there's a lot of people that go skip that and go directly to we want to get sales or we want to get views or we want to get streams, whatever it is that you're measuring your conversions by. And so the the brand awareness side of things is very, very important, whether that is for a product, whether that's for a person, because when you really focus on that brand awareness and spend money on things like digital advertising on brand awareness, those might not necessarily drive the sales, but you have to really start measuring things when you're doing brand awareness for a, a different measure of measuring your success instead of just sales. So you might get a lot of video views, you might get a lot of engagement, but that might not necessarily drive sales. But it's really important to build that up and to build that trust with whoever it is, whether it's a fan or a consumer, to where they know and understand who you are, what you're about, you know, everything, right? And then later on down the line, when you're selling a product... The product is a lot easier to sell, whether that's tour merchandise, whether that's a concert ticket, a stream, a video view. So there's a big step of that brand awareness that people skip out on, and I think that's really, really important.
8: Once an artist is able to build up their brand awareness, they have the potential to become a superstar of sorts. With the sort of fame that artists like Drake and Beyonce have, marketing strategies can look a bit different. We asked Felicia from Columbia Records what she had to say about the concept of the surprise drop and how exactly it works.
4: The surprise drop was just something where the artists who felt they were mysterious or the artists who who felt like they had that fan base. But remember when Beyonce did her surprise drop, she still had 17 videos ready to go. So she still was content heavy. You don't just drop and then you don't have anything to back up the drop. So that's part of it too, is you drop a preparation knowing that there's things to come after this drop. So it's not that it can't be done, but I think it does take a audience that you know loves you and is is at the core, but also giving enough context and then making sure that you still know what the audience wants to hear from you because sometimes these drops happen and the music just doesn't resonate. You know, and again, that's not anyone's fault. It's not Drake's fault. It's not Beyonce's fault because they should be able to evolve and take a risk. But you, at any point when you do a surprise drop, you're taking a risk because you were hoping that the fan is gonna show up and you're hoping that the music you give them is what they wanna hear, you know? And that they can sustain. The idea is that you wanna have consistency and you want people to keep wanting more. So just make sure if you do a surprise drop, that again, you have a plan behind the surprise drop. And I can't say that it works for everybody, you know? I definitely think you have to be at a certain caliber or have developed a certain level of mystique to be able to do that, which is like I said, or Frank Ocean. If he comes back, we're all gonna be like, okay, you know what I'm saying?
8: again and again we have heard that culture is what drives the music industry and thus marketing tactics must follow what culture dictates is of importance the most important thing that nima had to say was that one truly must understand the culture in order to successfully market within said culture
9: we really look at marketing from two standpoints we look at it first from a cultural standpoint versus knowing everything about that culture that you're that you're working in knowing things about the music industry knowing things about you know the streetwear industry and then the second part of it is the data and analytics side and knowing how to be able to read that data optimize that data utilize that data and so what i've found is that there's a lot of uh, agencies and a lot of people that do marketing out there that they know the data side of things that can be learned that can be taught the culture side of things It's not something that can necessarily be taught. You have to be involved with it. You have to be entrenched in it. You have to be part of the culture to
10: understand those things. Culture isn't the only thing that drives music marketing. At the end of the day, it's about profits. And data is a key proponent in tracking the fan engagement that often leads to those higher profit margins or whatever it is you're looking for. We're now going to hear from Cameron, Adam, and Igor about their ideas about data and monetization. Firstly, we will hear from Cameron, who'll give us an idea of what monetization looked like before the internet revolutionized, and what, like music marketing, and how you were able to get yourself out there as an artist before we had the internet and social media and even email <laughs> to bring about your fan base and make yourself known as an artist.
11: And we'd sell them, and we'd do marketing and promotion and all that stuff, and we'd hope people who got heard some of our marketing or some of our promotion. You know, I hate to. Admit this, but there was no email. How crazy is that? I don't look that old, but really, there was no email. So, you know, if we put out a record and did the marketing, maybe we'd go, you know, we'd try to get some press in the Stanford paper, we'd try to get airplay on, on the radio station, we'd have the band come there to, to play a concert. And through that time, there'd be some record stores, maybe one on campus, maybe some off campus, and we'd try to make sure the CDs and the records were in that store so that if you went to want to buy one, uh, there's no internet shopping. But if you wanted to go and buy one, hopefully we would. So we'd ship out you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of CDs all over the world. And then we'd start marketing and we'd hope people could find them and buy them.
10: Now, in the age of the Internet, streaming and data are of the utmost importance. And anyone who knows how to use the tools of technology can leverage them to turn great profits. Here we have Adam Reimer of Warner Records with an anecdote about how some data analysis and YouTube optimization increase an in artist's channel engagement nearly 10,000%. Hope you learned something.
0: Data is everything. And, and, and you'd be shocked at how many artists, like, they've just never really been, a lot of them at least, not all of them, some of them are really smart and really dig into the data on their own without me doing a thing but some of that just hasn't been their focus. So you'd be shocked at how many times like I'll present data to an artist and they go, whoa, like I didn't realize that. Like, okay, good to know, let's do more of that. You know, there's I, I, an example I always like to talk about with Michael Buble and when I got, when I um, took on that project three or four years ago, it was right around Christmas time and he's the Christmas artist. And I was on his YouTube channel and I realized that like all of the videos on his channel for Christmas like weren't doing great. And all the things on YouTube that were huge were user-generated videos. Fans just made these videos and uploaded them. And I go, well, that's not cool. Like We're not getting paid as much on those videos. We still get paid on them, but not as much as if they were watching Michael's official videos. Plus, when I've got someone watching videos on Michael's channel, they'll go and watch other videos on Michael's channel. And it just drives everything up. So... I started doing some research and looking at the data and seeing where fans were coming in and how fans were figuring it out. And I did a whole optimization campaign and I changed thumbnails and I changed links and I changed titles and ended up re-uploading videos and, and did a whole campaign on just like re-optimizing his channel and it cost us nothing. And, and views on his channel increased in like two days by like 10,000%. Like it was kind of insane. You know, and and they did a analysis afterwards and we figured out that I earned the company like $80,000 based p- in one month based purely on this optimization I did. And that's something that I only would have realized because I dug into the numbers and I dug into the data. And so if you're not looking at the data, you're just flying blind and it's kind of crazy. Data is everything. Data should be driving everyone, you know, and for good and bad, you should be learning things that don't work from data too. I, nothing... Drives me crazier than when people send out a report about something they did, but there's no results. Because maybe it didn't perform well. It's like, well, that's just as important as saying something performed well. Like, I want to know what what failed miserably, so I don't make that mistake, you know? So, yeah, data, data drives everything.
10: Now, that was a great story from Adam. But we can all agree that seeing your favorite artist live is a euphoric experience. Even if you haven't had the opportunity, you've definitely thought about it. For artists, this live touring is a great source of income, but it's very obviously it's not the only one. Now, Igor Katz explains how data, royalties, and streaming are important and how they affect revenue generation. The key here, folks, is to make sure you understand where your revenue comes from and how what is produced.
7: And luckily, there are so many different ways to monetize in music and those those ways are is huge and that's where we got our start but the fact is that probably 90 to 95 percent of your fans will never come to one of your shows and that's not because they don't want to but it's just geographically not possible and for other reasons not possible and maybe they'll go to a festival or something where there's multiple bands but it's actually a very small portion of your fans that you know that will like go and support you at a show. And there's the 95% of people that don't go to shows. And how do you monetize from them? How do you, you know, how do you build with them and the different royalties that exist, you know, within music from, you know, the sales and streams to publishing and syncs and mechanical royalties and sound exchanges, so many, and it's super confusing. And that's why, again, it's really important to like continuously daily, you know, spend the proper time learning and understanding what those royalties are, who collects them and how can I impact those royalties? And that's, again, not a cool, sexy, fun, like, Oh, I'm at a show like type of thing. And a lot of people don't spend the, even the biggest bands, right? They don't spend the time on those things because they're successful on the touring side or, you know, they might have other things going on and, they leave a lot of money on the table and they're not able to sustain themselves over long career. That's why you see them all of a sudden you're like, how the hell did you go broke? Like what you, you know, like this is crazy. And the, the reason is because if you're not understanding those things and not, you know, not properly like utilizing them, then you're just setting yourself up for at some point, you know, some like a pretty big drop, you know? And the process for us is, is always been, like trying to learn what these things are and how can we impact like the monetizing specifically on the royalty side. I mean, there's merchandise as well. There's, you know, there's other things you can do, but from digital sales to streams, and this is a really important point, like what's happening and it's, it's you know, it's definitely fully underway, but it's still like, a you know, kind of a big thing, right. Where an older demographic fan base who is still buying records on, let's say iTunes or Google or wherever, you know, wherever they're buying records from versus streaming, right? Like a big, a big like conversation that I get all the time is like, oh, Igor, you know, Spotify is really trying to screw us and YouTube is like, you know, paying us nothing. I'm like, oh God, like if I could just go on a mountaintop and scream to both artists and fans, it would be the following yelling, okay? It would be, listen, every time that somebody listens to your record on streaming, you generate revenue, okay? And I get it that it's a very tiny, tiny, like payout per stream, but think about this. When I buy your song on iTunes for 99 cents, let's just say, or $1.29, however much you wanna charge, 30% of that goes to iTunes already, boom, so it's down to 70% or 70 cents. And let's say I'm completely independent, I got no manager, no label, no other expenses, I'm keeping 100% of my money, good for you but now the person that bought that song is going to listen to it an exponential amount of times like think about how even just one person how many times over a lifetime they listen to the songs they like millions of times or hundreds of thousands of millions of times one person right so if that same one person didn't buy that song for 70 cents or 99 cents that you only get 70 of and just streamed your music for example and you were able to monetize every single time that they listened to your music, you wouldn't need a hundred million fans. You wouldn't need even a hundred thousand fans. You could be a viable band and brand with a thousand fans, with a hundred fans, right? Like you don't have to go work at Best Buy or Uber or wherever else. You can actually just like be an artist, you, your dream of if if that's what it is and not, you know, and not have to, like jump through any hoops or sign away your music or anything like that and that's what we have right like that's literally kind of what we have right now and that's why to me it's the golden age for independent artists.
10: No matter where you gain your profits whether it be from live tours merchandise or streaming if we take the time to consider this current climate of consumption during the pandemic many assume that streaming will skyrocket as people are quarantining and isolating for extended periods of time. However, Igor again provides us with a unique and interesting take on the matter. He addresses possible declines in streaming and what it means in terms of listening trends, such as who is listening or what they are listening in this section.
7: You know, what's gonna happen on the what's gonna happen on the streaming side? And I was like, okay, well, on the streaming side, I think it's gonna take a big dip. If you take away everybody's commute time, like Rush hour and when I'm in the car to and from work every single day millions of people's commute time is gone, which is when we listen to music. You take that away. Boom, we see this giant dip that starts to happen. And so I'm telling that he's like, Oh my god, yes, don't make so much sense. And so from there now we're starting to see a bit of a rebound okay like it's starting to pick back up a little bit so now he's like okay, okay tell me why I'm like, i don't know why but i think it has something to do with the fact that as we're at home now we're getting used to our schedules at home and we're reintroducing music back into our lives but the tricky thing is is that a lot of the publications and he's like well you know, music business worldwide said, like, you know, it starts rattling off things like, and they're very tricky. They'll say things like, Oh, they don't say streaming is up. They say subscriptions are up. Right. They'll be like, Oh, subscriptions are, you know, astronomically high right now. And I get that. But again, I'm a very why person. I want to know why, like if I can't understand why then it frustrates me. And to me, like the why has everything to do with children and not in the way that you think, because, For example, I have two daughters, four and one, right? And like they're, they're, you know, they're doing some kind of Zoom class in probably the next room now. But during the day, they need to be occupied. They got to do stuff, right? And I have to work, so usually I'll be like, all right, here's an iPad or something. You know, just take this for twenty minutes and go. You know, do something just by yourself, right? And I don't want to give them my Spotify because I don't want it to go from, like, Drake to then Baby Shark and, like, mess up my algorithm for, like, listening, you know. So I'm signing up for YouTube kids, Apple kids, Spotify kids, and this is what the DSPs are pushing super hard right now. Like, they're really, really out here pushing the family plans, like YouTube kids, especially Spotify kids, all this stuff is new. They're like, oh man, they know, you know, they're recognizing that, rolling that out and I'll pay for it. I don't care. Yeah, absolutely. Here's nine more dollars a month for just so I don't have to mess up my own thing, can keep my phone and give that to them and buy 20 minutes of like, you know, freedom for, you know, to work or do whatever. And that is what's driving subscriptions up, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that the total listening hours are up.
2: All right, so so far we've kind of looked through the roots of personal branding, building up that fan base, you know, the culture, social media, data, and monetization. We've covered all of these bases, but that's today, you know. As we've covered, a lot of this stuff is changing, and it's changing all the time. So what do our experts think about the future of marketing, specifically digital marketing? We decided to ask Adam, Nima, and Mayur about the same topic. And here's the responses that we got in order.
0: I don't know. You know, like, the, the the thing... I think social media is great because you can interact directly in a way that you couldn't do 10 years ago or 15 years ago, really. But... I do miss a little bit of, like, the mystique. and And sometimes I feel like... People put too much out. My artists put too much out there, and sometimes I'm like, "Oh, I wish you'd step back for a second or, or this thought that like you need to post something every single day. You don't, and sometimes it hurts when you do that. So I don't know, I, man. I don't know what it'll be like in five years or what it'll be like in ten years.
9: Transitioning to digital marketing and spending digital marketing dollars. And, you know, having that value to where you can reach uh, your consumer, your fan directly is becoming more and more valuable every day. Uh, And essentially like you're cutting out the middleman and you're being able to go directly to uh, who you're trying to reach. And I think just with the the current climate of the, the COVID stuff, that's becoming more and more apparent because now that's what everybody's trying to do because everybody's online.
5: There is not such a thing as digital marketing. It's just marketing. And we're all living in a digital world. And it's digital marketing for people who have done marketing for 30 years in an analog world when the world looked different. And they are still trying to um, translate and change the mindset. But you all live in a digital world, right? You don't say, I'm going to order Uber through my digital app and then I'm going to go take an analog cab. That vernacular doesn't exist. in in your lives or people's lives or consumers' lives. So there are only two types of marketing, good marketing and bad marketing. Everything else is made by us. We spent 10 years from 2000 to 2010 or so in this digital confusion era. Digital became a thing, 10 new technology, new sets of data, marketing tech, uh, iPhone, Facebook, everything just ballooned up, right? One decade of confusion. Then came in 2008, a lot of VC money, new startups. Innovation became table stakes, and, and growth became the thing, became growth at all costs. And marketing evolved from being absolutely purpose-driven and unaddressable, so it wasn't good because you had no clue, to now becoming totally addressable, to very dry, to all about fear, to all about action. And that's what marketing is now. There's no soul. There's no purpose, right? There is no why behind what they are selling. And so if you ask me, what is the future of marketing? It is the convergence of those two. It's not an either or. Because marketing that is about the purpose and brilliant, but doesn't drive growth is not sustainable. In the short term, it's like the oxygen, right? The numbers have to keep moving. That's oxygen. Marketing that is driving numbers but is not about who you are and doesn't reflect your purpose, your soul can get you the oxygen but doesn't have the nutrition, it won't last long. So, it's, it's that convergence is the future of marketing.
1: Thanks everyone for taking the time to listen to today's episode of the Stanford Music Industry Podcast. We'd like to take a moment to thank all of our guests, Dauda, Felicia, Igor, Adam, Mayor, Nima, and Cameron for taking the time to speak with us, as well as Daddy E Music for providing the background music for today's episode. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy.
9: That concludes today's episode of our podcast, Drop the Mic, Music Industry Conversations. Thank you to all of our guests for spending their time with us, and we'd also like to thank Tony Rodriguez for composing this season's theme music.
6: Tune in next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, for the next episode of our podcast, Drop the Mic, Music Industry Conversations.
8: We're the Stanford students that help put this season together. To hear all of our episodes, check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stay up to date with everything we're working on, including a playlist that features all of our musical guests from season one, plus our social media accounts where we post sneak peeks of what's to come, check out our website at dropthemiccast.com.
9: This has been Drop the Mic. Thanks again for tuning in. We can't wait to share more with you next week.